Good evening. It's good to be here. Um, it's a great honor and privilege that I have to been given the opportunity to stand before you to offer up what I've had to study and the opportunity that I've had to learn, and I'm glad to share that with you this evening. Unintentionally so, I think we've had two good in, uh, uh, intro topics into what I'm going to talk about this morning. Last Sunday morning, we heard Andrew Francis talk about the miracles of Jesus, and specifically, he laid up a chart talking about, uh, that pointed out the different miracles that Jesus performed throughout all the Gospels and marking where it was unique to the book, um, some common miracles that they shared. And it was useful to show that while the Gospels all talk about the same thing, there's some differences there. And then Van this morning talked about the emphasis on the way God has set things in order, especially there's an order in Scripture. And there's an order to the way that we can come to understand things through His Word. Um, and that's what we're going to try to do this morning. My title is Piecing Together Who Jesus Is. What this is, though, is a portrait of the Gospels. Why do we have four Gospels? I don't know if that's a question that's ever crossed your mind. Definitely when I was younger, it crossed my mind. Um, but ten years ago or so, I heard a lesson that was given on this topic. And it was very useful in me approaching my study in the Gospels and understanding why things are different why things are written and recorded differently the way they are in each account. And I got to thinking about it, and I couldn't recall ever really hearing a lesson on this uh, here. Um, it may have been mentioned slightly um, in passing in a lesson, but I can't remember a time that it was ever talked about in detail. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning. But along the lines of the question, you know, when we think about the Gospels, the Gospels are unique. Um, yes, it's four books written about Jesus, but if you think about it, where else in Scripture do we have four books dedicated to one period of time, to one man's life? We don't have that. The Gospels are unique in that way. But also, when we consider the Gospels, we have four different writers. We have four different backgrounds of those writers. Two of them are eyewitness accounts in Matthew and in John. We have a second-hand telling, which Mark's Gospels believe to be uh, information that he recorded that Peter uh, gave to him. And then we have one outsider account in Luke, and I'll explain that a little bit later. Um, but is it enough to us? Is it sufficient for us to, to accept the answer that the reason we have four Gospels is just because four men wrote differently about Jesus and that they recorded things slightly different? That we have four men that even though things are a little bit different, they're basically talking about the same man, so Jesus must be real. Can this account for the differences and the unique details that we find in certain Gospels? Can all of this just be accounted to four men doing things slightly differently to achieve the same purpose? And I believe that through this study we'll understand that that's not the complete answer. Certainly, there's a benefit to having four men contribute to this work. I think the Holy Spirit inspired each one of these men for a reason to write what they wrote. But that's not the complete answer. We have what is called a two-source theory. And I'm going to be honest, I've never heard about this until I put this study together. And the reason I put it in there, I'll explain here in a minute. But they take the generally accepted belief that Mark's gospel is the first one that was written then followed by Matthew, then followed by Luke. Um, then to explain all these commonalities and these differences, they said, well, obviously, Matthew and Luke relied heavily on the writings of Mark to achieve their purposes. 
Um, and then that's only one source, though. The second source is this um, supposed Q document. And Q comes from the German word quell to mean source. Um, I didn't look into the origins of this. I was just intrigued by the idea. But I, um, and the reasons that they give for why this is a valid theory is because most of Mark is paralleled in the books of both Matthew and Luke. We also see that they follow the same general order of events. The chronology is pretty well uh, consistent throughout. And in passages in all three of the Gospels where Matthew's and Luke's wording doesn't agree, they, um, wording doesn't agree when they both disagree with Mark. So if Matthew disagrees with how Mark words something, so would Luke. And that, that they submit this and this is people that are proclaimed Christians. These are supposed Christian scholars, professors uh, that tout this idea. And they say, surely this explains it. But I think there's several reasons and even more reasons why this is not a valid theory. One, the parallels in the three accounts I think we're going to show are not as extensive as people suggest they are. Um, two, we know that the Gospels, since we are Christians and we believe in Jesus Christ, we know that the Bible records actual history. It's going to make sense that things are going to follow a certain chronologic order. It would be more concerning if we had three different chronologies for each book. And then if we consider, um, if we compared all the information given in these three books, we would find that about one-sixth of both the contents of Matthew and Luke um, they disagree with Mark's wording and their agreement in disagreeing with Mark. Hopefully I didn't butcher that too much. They agree in disagreeing with Mark about one-sixth of the time each. So why would they so often change Mark's wording together? And then a couple of other ones I came up on my own. This was just in a document I read. I came up with a couple of other ones. Why would I, an eyewitness, Matthew, rely on Mark's writing so heavily? Matthew's going to have the clearer perspective. He's going to have, he was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He's going to be able to give us more detail than Mark ever could. And then, of course, there's no historical or uh, manuscript evidence of this supposed Q document. And there's more holes we could probably poke in this theory. And I don't bring this up because I think people here believe this, but I think this shows a problem that we have when we look at the Gospels. When we look at these Gospels and they're unique in the way that four writers came together, well, not came together, but they wrote about the same man. And we want to focus so much on the writers that we forget that Jesus is what the Gospels are about. And we don't always take into account that there are some intentional differences in the way that these men focus in on Jesus and his life. And when we think about being a Christian, and we think about all the duties and commandments that we've been given, we can boil it down in one simple phrase, and that's to be Christ-like. So for us to be Christ-like, we have to know Christ. We have to read in these Gospels because that's where we read of His life. But we can't just settle for one account. We have to piece together everything that each Gospel tells us to complete that portrait. See, if we look at it as if when we're reading the Gospels that a portrait's being painted for us, if we read just in Matthew, only about a quarter of that portrait would be finished. We have to read Mark, we have to read Luke, and we have to read John to see that full and complete picture um, of Jesus and to understand him better.
And I think the biggest reason we should reject this idea is because in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So these four writers, just like all writers of Scripture, were inspired to write uh, their accounts. Now, if we take that approach and we take that mindset into our readings, into our studies, into these books, and we consider the differences and their similarities through that lens, I believe we'll see that complete picture of Jesus. That it takes the details of all four accounts to fill in who, that, who Jesus is. And to begin, what I want to do is I want to go back to the Old Testament. <clears throat> There's what is referred to as the branch in the Old Testament, and we have four different uh, descriptions of that branch given to us. And I think what this does is it gives us the foundation for what the four aspects of Christ would be. Because the branch is Christ. We see in Jeremiah 23 and verse 5, I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king. Zechariah 3 verse 8, my servant the branch is mentioned. Zechariah 6 verse 12, behold the man who is the branch. And finally, in Isaiah 4, verse 2, it says, The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. So we have four characteristics of the branch. One, that he's a king. And I believe that one of the Gospels is going to show us that Jesus is that promised king. Two, we see that they describe the branch as a servant. And I believe one of the Gospels is going to show Jesus is the servant of God while here on earth. We see the branches referred to as a man, and I believe that one of the Gospels is going to paint that picture of the Son of Man. And I believe that beautiful and glorious aspect of the branch can be attributed to God, to Jesus being the Son of God in one of the accounts. So, with all this information, how do we go about figuring out which Gospel is what? Which purpose does uh, each Gospel serve? And I want to look at the genealogies. You know, traditionally, we believe that there's only two genealogies given. Um, we have Matthew's account in chapter 1 that goes from Abraham to Joseph. Then we have Luke's account that goes in reverse order, but it covers from Adam to Joseph, this being Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus. So what's significant about these two? One, Matthew, if we remember that one is going to tell us about the promised king, he stops at Abraham. And who is Abraham? He's the father of the Jewish people, of the Israelite nation. Um, so it's important that he stops there because he shows two things. One, he shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, but he also makes sure to note David, that he's the son of David. In verse 1 of Matthew, it says that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. So I believe that Matthew is going to show us that Jesus is that promised king. Now, if we compare it to Luke, we see that it goes all the way back, past David and past Abraham, all the way back to Adam. Why would that be? Well, remember, one of the branch characteristics was that of the Son of Man. So to go all the way back to Adam fits that purpose. Because he's, I mean, not, he's not ignoring the lineage of, uh, of David and of Abraham, but he's going back and making a further point to talk about him being in the Son of Man. So Luke will fill the role of showing Jesus as that Son of Man. Now, what about the other two books? Well, I put John 1, verse 1 through 2 up there. I want to read that real quick. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Traditionally, we think of two genealogies, right? Well, I would submit that this is a genealogy as well. Jesus has always been with God. He was in the beginning, 
and he and God are one. So John is painting a picture of Jesus as the Son of God, and we don't need an earthly lineage to show that. We just need to establish the fact that Jesus and God are one. So we have three characteristics assigned, and we have one book without a genealogy. Of course, that leaves Mark. So we know by process of elimination, Mark's going to show the servant of the service of Jesus. But why is there no genealogy? I do want to talk about that for just a second. If you think about in, time, in, in those times, the genealogy of a servant was irrelevant. Genealogies reserved, were reserved for kings, for royalty, for positions of power, and Mark's not writing about Jesus in that way. He's writing about Jesus as a servant. So it follows that he's not going to break pattern of how a servant would be treated as far as the genealogy goes and put one in. It just doesn't fit in with his purpose. So now that we have an assignment of a characteristic of each gospel to each characteristic of the branch, I hope that through this study we'll be able to solidify those characteristics in each book and will help us throughout this study. I want to look first at the gospel of, Mount, uh, of Matthew. Uh, Matthew at the very beginning, is intentional about including a couple of details that are omitted in other accounts. One, the story of the wise men coming to see Jesus after he's born. And we see in Matthew 2, verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Notice how they refer to him, king of the Jews. They don't come and ask, where's the Son of God? They don't come and ask, where is the Savior of all mankind? They come and say, where is king of the Jews? Because it was important that Matthew was showing that he was the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. Another unique uh, event early on is Jesus and his family fleeing into Egypt and coming out of Egypt. All the other Gospels leave this out. And it's important because in verse 15 of chapter 2, it shows, um, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I have called my son. So we see that this is because he had to show the fulfillment of prophecy. He had to show that he was that promised king. Um, and also, I think it's easy for us to look at the Old Testament parallels in Matthew just early on. We can look at the children of Israel um, who were led out of bondage, or, or led, sorry, excuse me, led from bondage out of Egypt. And Jesus, just like the children of Israel came out of Egypt, he also came out of Egypt. So even beyond the fulfillment of prophecy, we see the parallels of the Old Testament. The Sermon on the Mount is the only, uh, is included in its entirety in the book of Matthew. Nowhere else is it included in its entirety. And we see also the parallels uh, to the Old Testament. Jesus went up to an elevated place to deliver the new commandments of this new heavenly kingdom to the people. Just like Moses was delivering the, uh, the Ten Commandments from an elevated place to, to the people then. So we see um, the parallel there, but it's also important because as king, he had to lay out all the commandments for this new kingdom. Along with the Old Testament parallels, um, we see that Matthew quotes the Old Testament 36 times, far more than any of the other accounts. We see Mark only quotes it three times. We see Luke quotes it seven times, and uh, John only nine times. Why? 
emphasis on the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and Old Testament prophecies to prove that Jesus was that promised king, to prove his authenticity. And when we talk about, I kind of passed over this a second ago, we're talking about the kingdom, it's important to note that Matthew, this is where I think the Holy Spirit was intentional and who he inspired. Matthew is the only one of the four writers to hold an official role in the government. He was a tax collector in the Roman government. He was a Jew and he was an eyewitness. But as someone in an official position in a structured government, it's interesting that he was the one to be writing about Jesus in this role of authority, while the other ones don't uh, hold official positions. We see in uh, in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is referred to as the son of David nine times, once again emphasizing his lineage and his authenticity as the promised king. We see that he's referred to as king six times. Um, And that's interesting to note because Matthew and John are the only two accounts to mention Jesus being called king outside of the events of the crucifixion. And we think about when he was called king in the events of the crucifixion, it was out of scorn, it was out of mockery, and it was out of derision. But in Matthew and John, we have examples of him being called king, revered, even in that position of authority. And so it's fitting for both of those um, purposes of the book. We see that in Matthew, he's worshipped seven times. And if you looked at all the other accounts, you'd only find five total. Um, And we see that Matthew is the only account to mention the the church. Matthew 16, verse 18, he's talking to Peter. He says, "Upon upon this rock I will build my church. Matthew 18, verse 17, he mentions the church twice in that passage. Um, And what's the significance there? Jesus was the promised king, but the new heavenly kingdom was the church. So it makes sense that he's going to be the one to mention uh, that Jesus was talking about the church in his account. And we can see already how intentional some of this information that's included and left out seems to be uh, in his account already. When you read through the Gospels, you'll come across the word authority a lot. Um, It's not exclusive to anyone in Gospel. It's throughout, uh, especially Jesus having authority as mentioned. Um, On the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, after the Sermon on the Mount is concluded, they all mention that Jesus taught as one having authority. Um, But it's mentioned throughout even beyond those examples. But the authority that Jesus has is emphasized more in this book than it is in any other book. And I want to look at Matthew 23, verses 13 through 19. We're not going to look at all of this. I just want to pay attention to how many times he criticized and talked down to the Pharisees and the scribes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, calling them blind, calling them fools. Um, Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, so many times. And that's not even including all the criticism in between. We don't see Jesus addressing the Pharisees in such a manner that he does in, in this book because he's the king, he's the promised king, and he's going, he has the authority to do so, to talk to the Pharisees in a critical way. And there's a handful of addresses in these other accounts, but never with the authority that he holds in Matthew. Along the same lines of the Pharisees, we see that... Um, Matthew mentions the Sadducees almost exclusively. Outside of Matthew, you only see two references total in the other Gospels. And what's interesting about the Sadducees, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not in agreement about their beliefs. 
But part of Jesus being the promised king and this Messiah was that he was to be rejected by his own people. So these two sects of Jews did not agree, but they were in agreement in their rejection and their denial of Jesus. So I think it's important to note that Matthew's the one that shows that. Now the Gospel of Mark. So once again, we go back to that there's no genealogy present at the Gospel of Mark. But there's also no mention of Jesus' birth. Just like a lineage and a genealogy of a servant is not going to matter or is is irrelevant to his purpose, so is the birth. It's an appropriate genealogy for a servant. And we see that it begins right off with his ministry. In chapter 1, we see that John the Baptist is mentioned in verse 1, laying the foundation, the groundwork for Jesus. Verse 9, he's baptized, and then it moves straight on into his ministry. And it's important to note, too, the Gospel of Mark, since it's writing about Jesus as a servant, that the book was written by a servant. It was a disciple of Christ. We see John Mark, um, who is Mark in this case, um, he's mentioned in the New Testament writings of Paul that he was helping out in the spreading of the word and he is the one that caused the uh, tiff with Paul and Barnabas that caused Paul to go with Silas but we see later he must have matured a lot because Paul does end up uh, or seeming to find trust in Mark again you know when we think about parables in the gospels parables are pretty common Uh, they get brought up a lot but there's a big discrepancy in the parable usage in the book of Mark compared to the others. We see in Matthew, parables are used 23 times. 11, though, are unique to Matthew. Mark uses only 8, and only 2 of those are unique. Luke uses 24, and 18 of those are unique. And as we'll talk about later, John has zero parables. But what is unique about Mark's take on the parables, especially the unique ones, is that they are service-related. We see both of those, uh, the first one, Mark 4, verses 26 through 29, it talks about a farmer scattering seed. He goes about his days and he goes about his nights. He doesn't know how, but the seed comes up. And when it's time to harvest, he goes to work again. So we see him working and focusing on the work, both at the beginning and in the end. Mark 13 talks about um, a man who goes off to a far country and he leaves his servants. He gives them authority uh, to take care of things to do certain jobs, but he also gives them the duty to watch. And what are they expected to do? They're expected to watch, to fulfill their duties. And we see that that's very service-oriented. And also, one thing that we'll see in the book of Mark that's pretty unique um, is the way he goes about his ministry. Uh, when I heard this lesson the first time, it was referred to as the ministry of the hand, and I'm just going to stick with that a little bit. We see in Mark 1, verse 31 through 31, so he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her. We see another example, Mark 5, verse 41, he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Mark 8, verses 22 through 23, He came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands on him. He asked him if he saw anything. And then in Mark 9, verses 26 through 27, Then the Spirit cried out, convulsing him greatly, and came out of him. 
and he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So four separate occasions we see Jesus and his healings and his miracles. He comes and he takes these people by the hand. And why is that significant? Well, Mark mentions it four times. I think that it's only mentioned one time each in Matthew and Luke. Um, it's important to show Jesus was involved in his service, that he came and took these people by the hand to perform his work. And beyond all the miracles, beyond all the healings that Jesus performs throughout all the Gospels, yes, that was a big part of his ministry, Mark has a bigger emphasis on Jesus' teaching, and he takes it in a little bit of a different approach. We see in Mark verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 33 through 35, then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent on the road, for they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. So we see the apostles are having problems with this idea of status. They're following Jesus, right? And they know who Jesus is, so they're tying this all into earthly terms. They want the power, they want the status that they think they deserve. But what does Jesus tell them? If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Emphasizing service, saying if you want to be first, you're going to have to Put yourself last in order to achieve that. We see a similar example in Mark chapter 10. Both of these are unique to Mark, by the way. We have uh, James and John coming to Jesus with a request. They want to each be on Jesus' left and right in his glory. Once again, thinking of the earthly power and the earthly status that they think they should have. He gives a longer answer than what I'm showing, but at the end of it, he once again emphasizes the need of service. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And see, he puts a unique little twist on this one. He emphasizes that he himself came to serve and not to be served. And he always makes sure to bring the attitude of servanthood and service to the forefront in his account. Now, what about the lack of Old Testament quotes in the Gospel of Mark? Um, Mark's audience was to the Gentiles. If you think about, he's referred to as John Mark in other instances in the Scripture. John is his Jewish name. Mark is his Gentile name. And his Gospel is associated with his Gentile name. Um, so that follows along with if that really is his audience. Um, but how important, if you're speaking to a Gentile nation at this time, how important are old law, uh, prophecies, references, quotes, promises being fulfilled going to matter to you? That's not going to be the thing that resonates with you most of all. Um, so it's, I think that's a, an intentional aspect of Mark, that he doesn't dwell on those things because he's trying to connect with his audience. We see that the gospel, the term gospel, is used eight times in Mark. It is used in other gospels. It's used five times in Matthew, four times in Luke. But if you factor in the size of the book, we see that it occurs much more frequently in Mark, even besides the number. And as a servant that Jesus was being in this book, being portrayed as, he was the bearer of that good news. Do we see how that fits into the service narrative more so than it does into him being the son of man versus the promised king. The gospel of Luke is about Jesus being the son of man. And to try to relate that a little bit more clearly, he tries to relate the fact that Jesus came down from his heavenly station 
and he walked where we walked. He put himself in our shoes. He was tempted like we were. He was tried like we were. Um, and what's interesting about Luke is he gives the most detailed accounts of both Jesus' birth and John the Baptist's birth. And I think a lot of that has to do with who Luke was. Luke was a, a physician. He knew about the human body. And so this is his wheelhouse to talk about how miraculous these births really were. One, Jesus was born of a virgin. Two, John the Baptist was born to very advanced-aged parents, and his mother was even barren. So he talks about these in uh, a lot of detail that others don't give. Uh, I think it's fitting, too, that Luke was talking about Jesus in this perspective because Luke was a Gentile. We see in Scripture that he's referenced to as not of the circum circumcision. And so as a Gentile, as an outsider, it's important that he's showing that Jesus was like all men. He wasn't emphasizing um, he was a man for the Jews or he was their promised king. He was emphasizing that he's been where all of us have been. Um, and that's unique to his gospel. We see he's called the Son of Man 26 times. Um, he's actually called Son of Man more times, I believe, in Matthew's account. But what Matthew doesn't show is what Luke does and that Jesus actually was practicing the life of the Son of Man. And we'll get to that here in a second. We see the story of the age that Jesus was at age 12 of Jesus. That's unique to this account. Why? Because he's trying to show the human element of Christ. We see that this is the only account that mentions his age when he begins his ministry. Why? Once again, showing that human element to him. Um, let's see here. We see that in Luke, this is him being in, uh, the son of man in practice. We see that Luke shows that Jesus is in prayer 16 times. Eight times in Matthew, nine times in Mark, and four times in John. And John's are actually pretty unique, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But why would the son of man need to be in prayer? We need to be in prayer. He's trying to relay that Jesus suffered or experienced the things that humans do, and in his trials, he went to prayer. In his good times, he went to prayer, just like we should in our, in our lives. An important aspect of Luke is that he's showing and contrasting the way that God in the flesh does things versus how we in the flesh do things. There's a lot of unique parables to Luke, but two that come to mind are um, the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. And both of them are very good at showing and contrasting how we do things. We see in Luke 15 the story of the prodigal son. He, this is when he comes back after he's wasted all his living. He's hit rock bottom. He comes begging to be a servant. And his father treats him not how we would expect, but he tells them, Let's give him the best robe. Let's put shoes on his feet. Let's kill the fatted calf. And uh, let's be merry for my son has been dead, but now he's, he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And that's not how we would think to react in most uh, situations. And he shows the brother's reaction, which is probably how most of us would think to react, where his brother complains. An injustice has been done. I've been here. I've been faithful. I've been by your side this whole time. I didn't do what my brother did. 
and yet you don't do this for me. And that sounds like how we would want to react a lot of times, but we see that the Father says, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and alive again, and was lost and is found. So we see the way that we would want to do things and the way that we tend to do things versus how God would have us to handle things. And I think that's an important contrast that Luke shows. I also think we see that contrast in the story of the Good Samaritan. We have a traveler who fell among thieves, um, who was wounded. He lay on the side of the road, and people that should have helped him passed him by. The Samaritan was the person that was not expected to do that. But he helped him out. And we see that when Jesus proposes the question, who showed mercy? It was, uh, or who was the one um, that was considered a neighbor? And they said the one that showed mercy. And he calls us to go and do likewise. So even though it may not be natural for us, we have the call and the contrast that God wants us to do what may not come naturally to us. We see the thief on the cross repenting. That is unique to the Gospel of Luke. He is mentioned in other accounts, but his repentance is not. We see in Luke 23, verses 40 through 41, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And we see the contrast again. The thief admits that I have done wrong, this is just for me, but this man is innocent. So once again, that emphasis on, um, on the, way and the, the ways in the life of the Son of Man um, versus the sons of men. And that's very prevalent throughout his gospel. And finally, we have um, the state of the man's soul is mentioned in Luke's gospel. That's unique. We have the thief on the cross who after he repents has promised to be in paradise with Jesus. And then we have the story of Lazarus and the rich man where Lazarus found comfort and the rich man found torment. That's unique to Luke's gospel. And it fits into his purpose. The phrase a certain man is used 12 times in the book of Luke. Um, used once in Matthew and twice in both Mark and John. And then finally we have the gospel of John. Now, John is covering the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and that He is God. And we see pretty early on in the book of John a unique part of His ministry. We see the woman at the well. And throughout this interaction, we see He offers her living water. Or He asks for her to give her a drink, then He offers her living water. Um, And He explains what that living water is. Um, Then later in the account, He talks about, He reveals certain aspects of her. Um, And that might be a little small for you all to read, so I apologize. Um, But I'll go ahead and say, in verse 15, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And that you spoke truly. Um, So he's revealing intimate details about her to a woman he does not know. And then finally, in verse 26, he reveals to her that he is the Messiah. And we can see in this story and throughout the account of John that he takes a very different approach. Um, A lot of times, Jesus is almost trying to hide the fact that he's the Son of God. But here, it's very much in the forefront of the book. He's trying to show that God is revealed through him. We see that Jesus in this book is the bread of life. 
He's referred to, or he calls himself, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. These are all almost exclusively used in John. And we also see that Jesus is not baptized in the book of John. Why? Because as the Son of God, as God in the flesh, He was perfect. He didn't need the cleansing of sins. It didn't fit into the purpose of John to write about Jesus' baptism. He was God revealed to His creation. We see in the beginning of the book that Jesus is referred to as the Word. And we know that the Word is a manifestation of God. And that He revealed Himself through His Word through the life of Jesus Christ. When the reading through the Gospels, as we mentioned earlier, you will find no parables. Um, I heard it said in that lesson that parables are God-concealed, but this book is about God being revealed. And when you think about it, parables require some deciphering. You have to understand what Jesus is referencing to. But here, He makes no attempt to hide the fact that He is God in the flesh and He is the Son of God. We come to understand that God is in control in the account of John. Um, John 7, verse 30, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We see a similar situation in John 8, verse 20, um, that they wanted to lay hands on him, but his hour had not come. In other accounts, you'll see that when they wanted to seize him, emphasis was put on they feared the multitudes, but not here. This is about God being in control, and John was uh, showing that in his writing. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is unique to John. Now, Jesus raising the dead is not unique to John, but we know that Lazarus was a special, uh, was a unique event. We hear that we see that Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, and he waits two days before he departs. And when He's talking to his uh, disciples that are with him. He says, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So we see that emphasis and that his desire is to bring glory to God and that he will be shown to the people. So he goes there. He departs after two days. And we, by the time he arrives, Lazarus has been dead four days. And he's trying to go where Lazarus is laid. And people are, his sisters, Mary and Martha, are blaming him. People are doubting him. And he reminds them in verse 40, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So once again, the emphasis on the glory of God. And in verse 42, we see a short prayer that he offers up. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people that are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And then, of course, he performs the miracle in having Lazarus arise. But we see... He's praying to God and having these things done so that the people that were near would believe, not for his sake, because he was one with God. And we see that theme, that idea of bringing glory to the Father's name and him having that unity um, repeated in the other prayers that Jesus offers in John. We see in John chapter 12, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. That voice was not for him. It was for those around him so that he could be revealed to the people. And of course, we know in John 17, he's praying, to his, uh, praying for his apostles and later his disciples. But we see throughout the prayer that it's very intimate with God. He says, the world has not known you, but I have known you. 
because he's emphasizing the unity that he and the Father have. Now, there's a lot more that might come to your mind when we start talking about this. We just don't have the time to talk about each and every detail that would show this in every account. Um, There's too many things to go over, but I think what little we have gone over emphasizes the fact that each writer had a purpose. And if we take these things, we can apply it to the readings throughout other accounts and maybe decipher why some things are different. One thing I want to look at is that Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We have two uh, complete accounts of that in Matthew and Luke, but they record it a little bit differently. We see in Matthew chapter 4 when he's tempted, the first temptation is command that these stones be turned to bread. Two, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, I will give you all of these if you will bow down and worship me. And then Luke, he keeps the first temptation the same. Got a fly coming around here. Um, Keeps the first temptation the same. But he flips the other two. The next one is the kingdoms. And then the last one is, if you're a son of God, cast yourself down. Well, if we remember that in Matthew, he's the promised king. He's writing about Jesus being in a place of authority. It was important for Matthew to show that Jesus would reject the kingdoms of earth to be the kingdom for the church, or to be king of the new kingdom. Um, And that's not necessary for Luke's purposes. Um, And I always, when I read these accounts uh, before I did this study, whether it was in Matthew or in Luke, I always thought of it as each temptation got more difficult for Jesus. And if that's the case, it makes sense for Matthew to portray the kingdoms of earth as the last one that he had to turn down so that he could be the promised king and put that emphasis on um, where he wanted it. And I think we can understand that that's not a discrepancy. I think we can understand that the Matthew intentionally wrote it differently to show Jesus in a certain light that Luke wasn't trying to accomplish. And I also want to look at some other examples of Jesus being criticized for um, performing miracles, working on the Sabbath um, by the Pharisees. Matthew and Mark's responses are both from the same event. This is after his disciples have been criticized for picking ears of corn on the Sabbath day. And in Matthew 12, and verse 6, he tells them, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. We see that he's talking from a place of authority and is establishing that he's the one that is greater. Because he's the promised king. Mark 2, verses 23 through 28, he records it differently. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So we see two differences here in the way that Jesus responds, but they both fulfill the, prop, uh, the purposes that each gospel writer was trying to accomplish. The responses in Luke and John are from two separate, account, uh, two separate events. One in Luke is after healing a woman who's had an infirmity for 18 years. Uh, they criticize him and he said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? And then John 5 is after he's healed a man who's had an infirmity for 33 years. But Jesus answered him, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. So 
we see both of them answer in a way that's appropriate for their focus. And John, we see that he's telling them, as my Father in heaven works, I'm um, one with God, I'm on this earth, and I have to work as well. And he didn't fall under the Sabbath because he and God were one. So what's the takeaway? I believe that we can look whenever we're reading in each gospel account, we'll be able to understand their differences a little bit better. I think we'll understand all the different aspects of Jesus a little bit better, and we can come up with a better complete picture of who Jesus is in our lives and who we need to be modeling ourselves after, after we have that complete picture shown to us through our own study. But I think each book can kind of give us a general takeaway that we can build off of. Matthew, for instance, because he met the criteria of the promised king, because he fulfilled the old law, he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, we can trust in him. We can trust in who he says he is. And Mark, because Jesus came down from heaven, from a place of glory, from a place of power by the Father, and he came down to be a servant, he humbled himself and became a servant, we too should be servants. And Luke, because Jesus came down and put himself in our shoes and did it perfectly, handled every situation perfectly, he is the perfect advocate for us to the Father. And then in John, I think we, the obvious takeaway is because he is the Son of God, he deserves our praise and he de deserves our worship. And we're going to offer the invitation at this time. If you don't know Jesus, now would be the perfect time to do so. We offer the invitation for those who are in need, of course, but also for those who want to come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you feel like you've been sufficiently taught and you would like to be baptized for the remission of your sins, now's the time to do it. But if you have a need, whether that be a struggle that you're facing um, and you just need prayer, whatever that need is, please come as we stand and sing.